Heavenly Father, we have come today to praise you because you have overcome. Because of the victory that we have in Christ, we gather in worship with joy and anticipation about what you want to do in our lives. So we pray that you will speak into our hearts and our lives during this time together today. We pray that you would melt our hearts together in your love. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Take a minute, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. There are a number of uh, announcements in the bulletin. Let me just mention uh, the back page where it has the Holy Week schedule today. As Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. And uh, just notice that Wednesday night we don't have any activities. Thursday we have a special Maundy Thursday service, which is um, a, a commemorance of that last night of Jesus' life. And there's a lot of sensory things that take place during that service. And we'd love to have you be here as a part of that gathering. Uh, 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary on Thursday evening. Friday, we are going to uh, do what we did last year, have a journey to the cross. The gym will be uh, set up with uh, destinations that uh, just help connect with different parts of that, those last few hours of Christ's life. And uh, there are sensory things. Uh, children are welcome to come. You may want to have some adult supervision for smaller children, but if you can come and go anytime between 10 in the morning and 6 in the, in the uh, evening and uh, stay as long or as little as you want. But it's a time to pray, to meditate, to just connect and contemplate uh, the, the events of Good Friday, things leading up to that and even after as well. And then next Sunday, notice the change in worship schedule. Uh, we have a service at 745 just, uh, we have some people who are going to be baptized in that service, and uh, it'll be a great celebration. And then a breakfast at the college at 8.30, and then a 10 o'clock, one 10 o'clock service next Sunday back here in the sanctuary. So just note that, that change uh, in the schedule for next week. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The burial of Jesus. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. At this time, I'd like to invite the ushers forward for the giving of our tithes and offerings. Holy Jesus, 
hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended by foes derided by thine own rejected the guilty who brought this upon me alas my treason Jesus hath undone thee twas I Lord Jesus I it was God invites us to offer our prayers to him. As we pray together, if you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you pray, please feel free to join me.
God, we come before you today with mixed emotions. And quite honestly, uh, a need to confess our sins. We hear about the sufferings of Jesus, and yet we're continually trying to resist any kind of hardship. We set high expectations for others and resist similar expectations for ourselves. We clamor for attention about our needs and are often unfeeling about the needs of others. We're lenient about our own faults and severe about the faults of others. We are so quick to speak and often so slow to listen. And we often judge on outward appearances before discovering the character that's truly within other people. Forgive us. Be patient with us. Help us, Lord, to to continue to allow you to work in our hearts, to shape us and mold us, and and to create in us uh, the kind of people that you created us to be, people that are whole, loving, kind, compassionate, and filled with the joy that comes only from you. Father, there are lots of other things that we bring to our minds and our hearts today as we come to worship. There are people that we care about who are in need. There are people we know about that are in need. There are prayers for healing and comfort and restoration. And in this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we do pray for people who are in need today. And we do ask that you would bring your holy power to bear on those who are sick, on those who are grieving, on those who are wrestling with the pain of a relationship that is not what it once was. We pray for our world and the violence and pain and heartache in our world, famine and disease. And we pray that you will work miraculously and help your people to be a presence for good in this world of great need. Father, thanks so much for hearing our prayers. And thank you for answering in the way that you know is best in your infinite wisdom. We, we offer all of our prayers to you. And we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Please be seated. One of the last things that Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven is that they are to go into all the world and help people know what it means to follow him. They are to go into the world and make disciples, to, to, to spread the gospel of who he is and the truth of the kingdom. The question that the church has been wrestling with from that moment is how do you do that? What is the best way to be an influence in the world for Christ? There are all kinds of opinions about it. It runs the gamut of, of all the ideas that may even in this moment be popping into your mind about what that means and how that happens. It has a lot to do with the church's reputation. It has a lot to do with, with the, the, how people view the church. But ultimately, the question that the church is continually should be asking ourselves is how do we influence the world for Christ? Which means, what do we look like? I was thinking about that question, the series of questions, as I was reading once again this passage from John's Gospel that we read a few moments ago about the burial of Jesus. Jesus is dead, and the Romans typically left people on the crosses for as long as they could until the animals took care of them. Because they wanted to send a message to anyone who was thinking about criminal activity, this is what happens to you. Probably a strong deterrent. And so they would leave them up there. And so here, and, and so the, the disciple, the, uh, the men crucified with Jesus and Jesus himself would have stayed up there. Except that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, comes to Pilate and says, can I have Jesus' body and bury him? We don't know a lot about Joseph, but we do sort of get a sense from the scripture that he is a man who has some wealth. He's a man who has some influence, connections. I mean, obviously, he's able to go to the Roman governor of that whole area, and the governor welcomes him in and, has a, and lets, talks to him and grants him what he wants. So there's some kind of, of influence that Joseph of Arimathea has. He, he is also a part of the ruling body of the religious leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, about 70 people that, that ran the, the whole religious life of, of first century Palestine Judaism. So he has some clout there as well. And he seems to be a seeker after God. What John tells us is that he is a disciple of Jesus. That's what motivates him to want to, to come and give Jesus a decent burial. He's a disciple of Jesus. But it's interesting to me that he says he is a disciple of Jesus, but in secret. He's a secret disciple of Jesus. And the question you ask is, why? Why would, he want to, why would he be a secret disciple of Jesus? Why not be right up front? Why not, do, why not just be like all the other guys? And John tells us it's because he was afraid of the Jews. Now, that seems to be a theme that runs through a lot of the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John. The people are afraid of the Jews. Now, when you use the term the Jews, it doesn't mean the people as a whole. It means the Jewish leaders. In fact, some translations even use, say that, the Jewish leaders instead of just the Jews. But it's what I mean. It's, it's these people who rule the religious life of first century Palestine. The high priests, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, 
all of these people who are the religious leaders and have the power, and says Joseph is afraid of them. John, in John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching. And uh, John tells us that there are people whispering about him, saying, I think this guy's pretty good. And others are saying, no, nah, I don't think so. And they're having this quiet, secret conversation. It says they were whispering about it because no one wanted to speak publicly in Jesus' favor for fear of the Jews. Chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind, gives him his sight. And he does it on the Sabbath. And so that upsets the religious leaders because as we talked last week, you don't do good on the Sabbath. That's for worshiping God. We separate those things. And, and they're upset about it. So they bring the guy in and they interrogate him. And, and he sort of makes fun of them. So they bring in his parents. And they interrogate his parents. And, and they don't want to say anything. And in fact, they tell the religious leaders, look, you go ask him. He's old enough. And John says the reason they said that is because they were afraid of the Jews. They don't want to say anything that might get them in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And you come to chapter 12 of John's gospel. Now we're, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And his teaching is intensifying and he's healing and doing miracles. And, and the people, some of the actual religious leaders are now beginning to think, maybe Jesus is right. And there's a little more difference of opinion. But again, it says, no one dared say anything publicly in favor of Jesus for fear of the Jews. And as I pondered that, the question in my mind is, what kind, of, what kind of religious institution creates an atmosphere of fear? Is that what, the, what God's people are supposed to do? Is that how we influence the world? Is it by fear? Now, there is a difference between fearing God and fearing people. The scripture tells us a number of times that to fear God is the right thing to do. You go back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 18. Moses is choosing men to help him lead the people of Israel. And it says he chose men who feared the Lord. Move on to the book of Leviticus. Has lots of laws in the book of Leviticus. And as you go through the book of Leviticus, over and over again, it tells us that if you fear the Lord, then you will care about injustice. You will care about people who are vulnerable, orphans, widows, aliens, poor, people who have no voice in the world. You care about them if you fear the Lord. And the way we know whether you fear the Lord or not is how you treat those people. Move to Deuteronomy 31. Moses is giving his last speech to the people of Israel before his death. And he says to them, when you get into the land of Canaan, fear the Lord your God and you will be blessed. The Psalms often talk about fearing the Lord. Psalm 33 says, the Lord's eyes are on those who fear him, who hope in the one who redeems them. Fearing God is not a bad thing. It is what we're called to do because it doesn't mean intimidation. It doesn't mean anxiety producing. It doesn't mean putting the screws to us. It means worshiping God, loving God, honoring God, giving God our lives 
It's a, it's a healthy kind of respect for God. And that is completely different from what we see about how people feel toward the religious leaders. It's not a healthy respect. It's an unhealthy respect. It's intimidation. It's manipulation. It's control. It's all about power. And we understand that because that's often how things work in our world too. You think back to the last political campaign we just came through. And go back even further than that, but just take that one. And I don't know about you, but most of the ads that I saw were something like this. It's not, if you vote for me, here's what I can do for you. But rather, if you vote, if you vote for them, your life's going to end. Right? If you vote for this person, everything you fear is going to come true. And it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you might be on or the candidate might be on. Everybody was using it because people know fear works. And you, you frighten people enough and they'll get behind you. And that's how our world operates. You know, you go into your place of places where, you know, maybe you work. I mean, one of the ways that that companies use to to keep employees in line is intimidation, fear. And unfortunately, too often through the centuries, the church has used that same strategy. We are so enamored with what's right, we believe is right, we believe is the truth, and we want everyone to know that. And people aren't going to listen if we don't frighten them into listening if we don't intimidate them into listening, if we don't scare them into listening. And so we use every tactic that the rest of the world uses. You see it through the centuries. And it's it's unfortunate, but there it is. I was reading not too long ago about uh, about one of the the leaders of of the Reformation movement in the 16th century. He was a great pastor, a great leader, great theologian, brilliant person. And he was the leading churchman of the city where he lived. And he was so enamored in this battle for the Reformation that he, he, he really wanted to get everyone behind him and wanted to help everyone understand that he was right and the opposition was wrong. And so he, he put together sort of this police state of spies all around the city. And they would report to him and people would be fined and punished for things that he said were wrong. And so there's lists like drinking, dancing, uh, saying that there was no hell or devil could get you fined or punished. Saying that the Pope was a good man could get you fined or punished. Even, he said, you could get fined or punished for criticizing his sermons. I didn't know you could do that. (laughs) There'll be an announcement in next week's bulletin about... now, not, you know, some ideas are not bad. That, that one might fly. But, you know, there, there's a sense of I've got the truth. I know it's the truth. I know it's right. And anything that keeps me from telling you that and you getting it, I've got to eliminate. And intentions are right. And, and, the, and, the, and the reasoning behind it may be Right. But is that really what God has designed his church to be? Is that really the influence that God has called us to be? 
That the church is a, is, a re, is a point of intimidation and fear. And that when people think about the church, do they say of us, I don't want to say anything for fear of the church. We don't want to speak up for fear of the church. And not just outside the walls of the church, but even inside the walls of the church. We don't want to disagree because if we do, bad things are going to happen. Is that what God's intent is? Is that how we influence the world? I don't think so. Because when I read the scriptures, while God certainly calls for his people to to know the truth, and God is, is very definite about what is right and wrong and true and false, and there are things that we believe that we hang on to and we speak and we stand up for, But ultimately, when God wants to influence the world in the most profound way, John tells us, in probably the most famous passage of Scripture, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. It is love that God is calling us to exhibit. Because I'm convinced, if you want genuine transformation... Love gets us there far more than fear does. Fear might motivate us for a little while, but eventually something else comes along that creates a higher degree of fear and we jump on that ship because we are more afraid of this than we were of that. And then something else is going to come along that creates more fear and we're just jumping all around as to what makes us most anxious, what intimidates us the most. And whatever comes from that is typically short-lived. And that's why God's strategy is love. Because love is ultimately what brings genuine transformation. And when you read the scriptures, God doesn't bully anyone into the kingdom. Rather, we see God calling us and wooing us and desiring us and coming to us and loving us. And if that is the way God influences the world through his son, how could our strategy and influence be any different? How do we create that atmosphere? How do we change the climate that unfortunately so often pervades the culture of the church. How do we change into creating a climate, an atmosphere of love rather than fear? I think one thing is to is that corporately we acknowledge that we are all sinners in needs of God, in need of God's grace, and that never stops. We never reach the point where we say, I don't need God's grace anymore. I'm perfect. I've arrived. I'm done. No one ever gets to that point. And in fact, the people who are most righteous, the people who are, who are most like Jesus, the most holy, are the people who recognize more than anyone else how much they need God. And how everything good in their life is only because of God and because of his grace. 
One of the signs of, of spiritual immaturity is a sense that if we just are good enough, then we can kind of accomplish things on our own. It's the most godly, holy people who recognize nothing good's going to happen without God's grace in our lives. And so we acknowledge our need for God over and over and over again. And we keep, hopefully we are, we are progressing and we are becoming better. We are becoming more like Christ. But it's not because of us, it's because of Him. It's simply, we've simply allowed Him to change us and to work in us. One of the reasons we use fear is because we are arrogant, quite frankly. And nothing, is, nothing strikes at the heart of our arrogance more than acknowledging how sinful we are and how much we struggle and how much we need God. I think we also have this sense of creating an atmosphere of love instead of fear by committing to each other and recognizing that despite all of our differences, we unite in Christ There are some core things that we believe as followers of Christ. There are core things that that we we would go to the grave for. We would stand up and we we would take a bullet for those things. But there are a lot of other things that are peripheral, that are differences of opinion. There are differences of interpretation. My, unfortunately, what I find, and I, quite frankly, this sometimes is my own struggle as well, but I, hear, I see it and hear it all the time. Often, we are much more willing to fight for the peripheral stuff than the core stuff. And somehow, as the church, we start focusing on the essentials. And maybe we, and maybe we just agree to disagree about the peripherals. That doesn't mean we can't talk about them. doesn't mean we can't have dialogue about them. In fact, we should have dialogue. We should talk about them. Because quite frankly, one of the things we need to understand is that, is, is that instead of this mindset of how can I convince them to my way of thinking, we instead come together with the mindset of what can I learn from what God has revealed to them? And that spirit of humility. Because God is at work in all of us. And God speaks into all of our lives in different ways and our experiences and, and things that, that we have learned and, and just the various things that have happened in a part of our lives. God uses those to speak into our lives and he uses it to speak into our corporate life. And we're committed to each other. And even when we disagree, we're committed to each other. And we care for each other. Because if we use intimidation and fear to get our way inside the church, we'll use it outside the church too. It starts here. And ultimately, this is simply about modeling what God has done for us on the cross. It's it's risky to choose love over fear. Because quite frankly, fear... It's strong. People respond to fear. We can get what we want, at least it appears that way, with fear and intimidation. I mean, that's why politicians use it so much. It works. But in the kingdom, it doesn't work. And God's strategy 
is not to come with swords, but to come with a cross. The strategy of God in Christ is to risk love. Because genuine, true love is always a risk because it can be rejected. You think about the people who put Jesus on the cross as they're standing there watching him die. Do you think they're intimidated by him? Of course not. That's why they taunt him and abuse him. They they believe that, that fear and intimidation has won. And in that moment, it certainly looks that way. They've won, he's lost. But just a couple of days later, the tables are turned. And we know that what looks like losing is winning. And what looks like winning is losing. Because ultimately, in the kingdom of God, love always wins. The love of God in Christ wins. And ultimately, despite what it looks like to us here, eternally, ultimately, love defeats fear. Someone said to me not too long ago that fear is stronger than hope. And I think in our world, we see that that's probably how a lot of people feel. That fear has a stronger pull on us than hope does, but not in the kingdom. Because our hope is in the one who is the hope of all the world. And in Christ, everything is different. Everything's turned upside down. And in Christ, it is love that truly influences and I know it's risky to love we all understand that we've all put our hearts out there with other people and and had them hurt you think of how God feels of of sending his son and going to the cross and and the agony of the response of human beings including ours but nevertheless God's strategy doesn't change And I am convinced that what God is looking for, the influence of the church in the world, is not intimidation and fear, but it's love. And it's grace and compassion and mercy because that's what it looks like when God fills us. So it really comes down to the question of who we're going to trust. What strategy are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the strategy of the world? Fear, intimidation? Or are we going to trust the strategy of God in Christ? That looks awfully risky. But ultimately, isn't. Ultimately, this is the way to victory. It's the way of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know, this is hard for us. We struggle. Risk is hard. Loving is hard. It goes against the grain of 
how our world operates. We pray today that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have attempted to use any other strategy but yours to be an influence for the world. We pray, Father, that you will infuse us as individuals and as a body of believers with the Spirit of Christ and let it permeate who we are as a congregation of people. That our influence would be the influence of Christ, His grace and love. Father, as we prepare to gather around this table, we are reminded through these symbols of your love for us, of your mercy in our lives, and your grace to us. We pray, Father, that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, that we would know again your love for us, and that we would receive it, and that we would embrace your way of being your presence in this world. Pour out your anointing on these elements, that they would be food to our souls. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by intinction. It just means to dip in. As you're released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. If you'd like to stay and pray at the altar rail, please feel free to do so. I like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. That means that you don't have to be a member here. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God and with a desire to know the grace of God in your life and and to live in fellowship with God and with other people, then you are wholeheartedly invited to come and to receive these gifts from our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul.
please stand and sing with us.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.